This episode of the AI and Industry Podcast is all about where the rubber meets the road for AI in insurance. And before I go to introducing our guest, I want to mention that this is the last episode of its kind on AI and industry, starting next Tuesday. So that's right, we're going to be publishing, instead of on Fridays, we're going to be publishing every Tuesday moving forward. Starting next Tuesday, we're going to be kicking off a new format for the AI and industry show. We take a look at all the episodes that get the most downloads. We take a look at the feedback that we receive from our uh, listeners around the world, Um, email feedback, but often just LinkedIn messages to me directly. I get hit with a lot of questions from subscribers and listeners. Um, And we've decided that each month we want to focus on a specific theme. So the entire month of August 2019, we're going to be focusing on AI adoption, how to adopt AI into an existing business. And then the next month in September, the whole month, every single episode in September is going to be focused on how to get ROI from an AI initiative. So how to best ensure and best set ourselves up to deliver a financial return on an AI project or initiative. That's going to be in September. So next month is all about AI adoption. We have four separate episodes on that exact theme, and our guests are big deal. We've got folks from Comcast, uh, folks from NVIDIA, from Nuance Communications, big name AI leaders who are going to be sharing their best practices for AI adoption in the entire month of August. And we are going to be shifting our publishing date to every single week on Tuesday. Many of you know we've launched a new podcast called AI in Banking that goes out every Monday. And you can find AI in Banking on iTunes or on SoundCloud or any other podcast platforms. But for AI and industry, we're shifting to Tuesday and we're shifting to a monthly theme format, which I'm very, very excited to do to build on each episode and deliver insights that are valuable no matter what sector you're in. So very, very pumped up to make that shift. But before uh, we do that, which is going to be coming up next Tuesday, I'd like to introduce our guest for this week. Jerry Overton is the head of AI and a fellow at DXC Communications. DXC is a massive IT services firm uh, based in Virginia. DXC also is heavily involved in the insurance sector. Jerry speaks with us about uh, some of his experience uh, implementing AI projects in the insurance space and working in that domain. Um, We focus here at Emerge a lot on the market research side of insurance. If you type insurance into the search bar at emerj.com, you're going to see dozens of articles covering NLP, computer vision, we assess companies, we look at the Fortune 500. I mean, we go deep on insurance, but one thing that we don't do is actually do the technical work to implement these kinds of AI systems. So we talked to Jerry about that, and we asked from his perspective, being up close and personal in this sector, where is there real traction for AI and insurance from his experience? And secondly, where is there hype? Where is everybody excited, but there's no real traction yet? We get both perspectives from Jerry in this episode, and I think that he articulates it well. And I was grateful that we got to squeeze in this episode before the format change uh, to the new format for the AI and Industry podcast coming up next Tuesday. So without further ado, I'm Dan Fagella. You're listening to AI and Industry, and this is Jerry Overton with DXC. So, Jerry, where I wanted to kick us off is really starting off with the opportunity areas for AI in insurance. And when I say this, I really mean sort of the near-term and or current ROI. There's so many different ways where AI and NLP and computer vision might sort of be valuable in insurance. What do you see as that low-hanging fruit today? Yeah, that's a really good question, Dan. I What I would do is look at the insurance industry in four basic segments. So being able to reduce waste improve efficiency, improve the service quality, and then to differentiate a company. So if you start with that first one, reducing waste, 
some of the near-term applications of both machine learning and artificial intelligence is just around being able to detect fraud, being able to monitor your transactions for uh, patterns or possible uh, fraudulent activity and um, being able to, to flag that much better. Uh, moving along that spectrum, so going from just reducing waste to improving your efficiency is just being able to better micro-segment and demand forecast. Then from there, moving into things like improving risk calculation. Now, that's an area where you see a lot of uh, value being captured is, you know, if you can get better data, you can apply smarter methods, you can improve your risk calculation, in, in a sense, you know, improve your ability to, you know, I- identify that risk and, and mitigate it on behalf of your of your customers. Last one is around um, market differentiation and the areas where we see uh, the ROI being gained there is just in micro segmentation. So just being able to understand a little bit better, for example, you know, who is Dan and what are his specific needs. So lots to dive into here. You you kind of opened up your own can of worms. Uh, you you uh, <laughs> threw it back at me, Jerry. Uh, darn you for that. But uh, no, I, I, there's a lot to poke into here. So the four areas you touched on, you talked about, if I'm not mistaken here, I, I had jotted down reduce waste. We have efficiencies. We have something else and then differentiation. What was that something else? The third one was uh, improving service quality. Service quality. Okay, understood. So yeah, oftentimes we think about this in terms of uh, reducing risk, uh, Im- improving margin, so kind of like savings, uh, or improving top line, which might be like that differentiation, opening new business lines, etc. But I like the way that you stratified things here. When you say reduce waste, you had fraud there. I guess I always think about that in kind of the risk bucket to some degree, and, and maybe even to, to the efficiency bucket. It, it seems to me as though that really is, you brought that up as a first example, that really is such an, a natural sweet spot for AI, just given the fact that anomaly detection is, is just such a nice place uh, for AI to wiggle itself into uh, to any business process. Do you have kind of a way to, to paint the picture of how that used to be done? In other words, how anomalies used to be detected, how fraud is normally you know uh, combed for and assessed versus what an AI layer might look like? Um, is, it, is it simply flagging and tagging more of the right and less of the wrong fraud instances for the fraud manager folks? Um, or is it something different in terms of the transformation of that business process? Uh, it, it's really more along the lines of letting a machine do what it, it can do much better than what uh, people can do. So one of the things that you know machines are really good at is just spotting patterns and large amounts of information. So you know, the, the typical way of, say, detecting uh, fraud is just to find different examples, uh, past examples of fraud. And, you know, if you're a person, you're combing through and you're looking for patterns. Right? You're looking for anything that you can glean, say, uh, intuitively or anything that you can figure out by doing uh, statistical analysis just by hand. Well, the machine at, at this level essentially takes that and, you know, ramps it up by several orders of magnitudes because, with machine learning algorithms, you can look at so many more dimensions. You can look at so many more uh, situations and find different patterns, or you, you can find different indicators of anomalies that you just wouldn't be able to uh, with a with a with a human being. Yeah, and, and I guess 
you know, the way that I imagine this, and Jerry, you would have a better idea of what this looks like boots on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. So c- clearly, and, and we see this in uh, banking, we see this in insurance, uh, this anomaly detection idea is just such a sweet spot. To, to ask if AI can predict what kind of email to write to make somebody to buy more stocks over the course of the lifetime of them being a customer, that is really damn hard. Um, but to say, is this more likely to be fraud than a human could pick is like really damn easy. Um, so obviously, there's an overlap here. There's there's an opportunity here. Is this simply filtering these instances of potential fraud, these instances of, of uh, insurance claims through an AI system first and then having it come out the other end with, you know, red, yellow, green uh, for, for human beings as opposed to having humans do all the red, yellow, green? Or are existing systems kind of more if then more expert system kind of stuff in terms of what uh, large insurance firms are doing now is it already have some kind of programmatic rule set but ai is more of a smart layer on top of that or are many firms literally having humans do all the darn heavy lifting looking at these instances and making their own red yellow green call yeah okay, okay. really really good point uh, i think that okay what exists now um, is an ecosystem in mo- most companies they have digital systems for doing this type of thing, right? It's not, you know, that everyone's sitting in the back office with a pile of Yeah, papers. yeah, there's got to be uh, some some kind of process. That That's right. But, you know, your, your question had um, several uh, ideas in it that I would like to unpack. The first one you were talking about, um, you know, is this AI layered on top? And really what we found is that the, the, the companies that do best with using AI for anomaly detection uh, fraud detection, it's it's really about putting AI somewhere in the middle. And what I mean by that is you don't let the artificial intelligence or even, you know, a simpler machine learning application make the decision as to whether or not it's something is fraudulent. Because, you know, like you said, it's damn easy for uh, a machine to find a pattern that it thinks is fraudulent. But often the, the biggest problem with uh, being able to do something like that is you end up with false positives. So that's, you know, the machine flagging someone um, as, you know, having fraudulent activity when in fact they aren't. Those cases are very, you know, although from a machine's point of view, right, uh, you know, it may be an acceptable uh, mistake to make, right? You still might be looking at a really high accuracy from a customer customer's point of view. That's a very bad experience. And so for that purpose, right, you don't want to layer the artificial intelligence on top. You want to put it in the middle. It becomes just another system that you use to uh, filter down and to get to, you know, you think of it like, um, you know, uh, mining for gold, right? You're, you're passing the, the raw rocks and such through all of these filters and, you know, at the bottom drops out the gold that you're looking for. You can consider artificial intelligence to be just another one of the filters in the system that helps you get to you know, what's fraudulent and what's not a lot faster. Yeah, um, I've heard all kinds of interesting analogies around that, not thinking about it like pizza, but thinking about it like lasagna, where we have sort of <laughs> all the ingredients in the middle, as opposed to, I think the it is pretty clear that the lazy enterprise approach for AI everywhere is putting AI on top. We're already getting pretty bad and messy signals. We already have a big gunky legacy process, and we're trying to coax the data off the top of that sort of add a little bit of value, a little bit of transparency onto it. Clearly, there's limitations there across the board. Um, it sounds like in fraud as well, it's really necessary to make it more, you know, baked in. I realize that, of course, there's risks. Right. If and we if we flag somebody as more risky than they should be or what have you, there's, there's legal consequences there. There's all kinds of consequences there. Um, in terms of 
human oversight, it would seem to me like there is a certain level of sort of certainty in the machine when something is so clearly fraud that maybe there's not that much human oversight. I mean, maybe you could explain, I guess, the the levels of, of granularity here, the gradients of human attention, because I can imagine some tiny, somewhat financially insignificant insurance claim that is also so blatantly, obviously fraud, it's not even funny, where maybe we don't want human scrutiny, honestly, happening that much. I mean, I'm thinking as somebody who runs a business, it's like, at a certain point, I don't know, you, you, got, you got a limited number of dollars here. And then there's other instances where we have to go deeper. You're, you're framing this as it's always a precursor to human judgment. It would seem like maybe sometimes that's not the case, or, or at least there's a, a healthy gradient. You would know what that gradient looks like better than I. Right. So the human judgment is um, at the end of the process, but it isn't necessarily at the end of every single decision. And I think that's really what you're pointing to is the difference between um, having someone uh, be in charge of the process and having someone be in charge of every single decision. So when you are uh, deploying uh, machine learning models to detect anomalies, you are also generating confidence scores. So the machine is telling you with a certain amount of confidence that this is an anomaly. Yeah, you you have a certain level of tolerance where it's uh, pretty safe or you know relatively safe to say that you know if the confidence that this is fraud is above a certain threshold, let's just say you know something ridiculous like ninety nine point nine nine, let's go ahead and tag it as fraud and let's start looking at you know the other you know bulk of of uh, decisions that are coming through that are maybe at um, you know, uh, a lot lower confidence. So, you know, it, it really becomes a way to, to, to triage and maybe at the lower end of that triage where you're fairly certain that this is going to be fraudulent, that, you know, no further oversight is necessary. Got it. Yeah. And you would imagine that that's the case, right? Certainly with things that are of just so low importance and, and so high a degree of certainty based on just the, the most meaningful signals we could ever coax out. It's like, do we need somebody to take 30 seconds uh, or two minutes to, to do anything here? I like the idea of it's part of the process, but not necessarily every decision. I like that distinction. Uh, I think that that's actually a usable distinction across a lot of different AI sort of use cases. One other sort of topic that you brought up here, if we just talk about the grab bag of ideas that you, you threw back at me, Jerry, which I very much appreciate, <laughs> by the way, you're, uh, you're, you're moving nice and quick for the audience, um, is, is risk calculation. Of course, you know, the way that, that we've understood it is that certainly there is, and we work with a lot of these companies on kind of the lead gen side of things and have to kind of hear their value props over and over and over again. The, the idea is certainly you can reduce risk. So, hey, don't take on folks who are maybe really a, a, bad, a bad choice for a customer here or, or, you know, just a decision that's maybe not the right move for the business in terms of, of what kind of, you know, policies you want to issue to what kind of folks based on, on various data signals. But there's also the value prop that if we know what our risk threshold is, we might be able to say yes to more business that is profitable. And I think that that's the, the revenue upside in addition to the margin improvement and the risk reduction uh, that makes this sort of risk calculation game feel like such an opportunity in insurance. And I know it's not easy. Is that a good synopsis on your side or are there other elements at play other than the ones I've just articulated? Well, it's a good starting point. I would say that the, the spectrum is even broader than that. Go for it. Yeah. So, yeah, on the you know just looking at risk, just being able to say no to risky prospects, right? That's that's the far end. Um, you know, let's just say that's the far left side of the spectrum. But as you move over to the right, right, there are um, you know 
different business opportunities that maybe you hadn't spot, but even further over is being able to look at behaviors that will decrease risk. So not just saying, okay, you know, here is a group of cohorts that have lower risk, but being able to look at certain dimensions that lower the risk. So what is less risky behavior? And then you can go from a business model where, you know, you are protecting, simply protecting someone from risk. Uh, you can go from that to a business model where you are subsidizing more healthy behavior. And your value proposition changes. Yeah, that's that's obviously different from insurance as usual, right? Um, and and mm-hmm. to be frank, uh, Jerry, I would be under the presumption at present that the vast majority of insurance leaders are not thinking in those terms on a day to day basis, and and in fact that that probably won't be the dominant paradigm for quite some time. Um, that said, uh, it is a very interesting one. Do you think that that paradigm? I mean, clearly it wins you some good guy points, right? I mean, if you play that up as your value prop, it, it certainly appears more virtuous than, hey, we're going to try to bill you every you know year for more than what we think you would bill us if you you know wrecked your car, or your building burned down. You know, to be able to say, hey, we're encouraging the proper behaviors. Certainly, you win some good guy points. Are you seeing areas where that is actually translating to business? Is there anybody doing that well? Is there any subset of insurance that you think really already has traction there? Because I think it's a paradigm that maybe more people should know about. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to challenge some underlying assumptions. You know, I, I believe just as uh, what you laid out that okay, yeah, this is you know great for maybe putting out a blog post about you know you're good corporate responsible company. But, you know, that's not really where um, executive heads are. Um, and that's not where... Um, well, to, today you know, that, is what I said. Yeah. I mean, in other words, like I, I just wasn't presuming most insurance leaders think of this today. But you, you again, you know better than I, Jerry. So please. Well, um, from the sessions that I've been in. So one of the things that we do is we sit down and we have these uh, innovation sessions yes. uh, where we actually bring in artists and they draw the conversation and draw pictures and such. And we're able to open up and have these conversations with insurance executives around, you know, well, what do you want your future to be? What's important to you? And I was actually very surprised at the number of executives and the number of different companies who pointed to social responsibility, aspects of social responsibility, saying things like, we want to be the safety net for society, for this new digital world. We want to be seen different, right? We want to be seen as promoting healthier, more sustainable world rather than just, you know, covering someone in case of a disaster. So I, I, I was pleasantly surprised at how progressive executives are on this issue. Now, it is not the norm for these programs to be done, you know, and, and for uh, insurance companies to have these types of uh, applications out there up and running. But, you know, at least from what I've seen, executives are certainly thinking in this area. One of the big um, areas that you can point to is the movement around sustainable insurance. So the idea of these small micro movements, you know, looking at issues of things like climate change or erosion or, uh, you know, local social uh, problems and being able to provide sustainable based micro insurance policies for that particular group. That's something that you see, actually, that there's large uh, conferences that are sponsored by the UN and they, they have you know, really well represented group of uh, insurance companies there. So 
leaders are thinking along those lines, but it is still an emerging area. So. Yeah, in terms of the the paradigm, so well, cool to see that, and and I I think uh, ideation sessions are are pretty pretty necessary, and when it comes to the intersection of a, an area like insurance uh, and AI, I think there's still a lot of guinea pigging to be done to find where the the deepest opportunities of today's level of AI tech sort of exist, but. It is neat to see that you've seen so much of that overt resonance. I think that I guess the thing that that we're both in agreement on is that insurance leaders imagining their companies and business model primarily as healthy behavior or safe behavior encouragers is kind of a different ball game than than kind of how it is at present. Although that may become the dominant p- paradigm at some point, are there places, Jerry, at this point, whether it's auto insurance or commercial or whatever? where you're seeing some facet of this, hey, we are promoting and encouraging the safer or the healthier behaviors being the norm. Are there any companies or use cases or instances, or is it more of just an idea and a vision worth moving towards with maybe you know, no, no necessary examples tied to it, or, or do you have a couple? No, I, I don't see this. There isn't an area where I see this being the norm. Yep. There are you know, different subsectors of the industry that talk about it more than others, but you know, like I said, it's an emerging emerging area, and it, it is certainly not the norm. Uh, yeah, I, I would tend to agree at present, but I do think that at least there's a, another alternative, compelling vision that they could move towards, and it's neat to at least flesh that out. And I'm glad that we did. The next question, I know we we, we went off on that one, Jerry, and I wanted to wrap up on our last <laughs> one, but uh, I'm glad I'm glad we've 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 torn into where we believe the opportunities uh, areas to be, and I'm glad to have your opinion there. I want to wrap up on this. Where do you think the hype is? Because you know, part of our job is looking at these different sectors, getting a sense of where is their traction, where is there no traction, where is there a lot of attention, but really no evidence of ROI and a lot of very clear barriers. Are there any facets and applications of AI and insurance that you really feel like they're talked about. They might be worth something in the future, but really, right now, they're they're not. They probably shouldn't be seen as as areas where we're going to put in, you know, X million and get back X million. It's just just not not fleshed out enough to really be delivering, despite what people think. Anything that jumps out at you there? Well, uh, there aren't any areas where I, I think that you're going to have problems with ROI, or you know, that you're going to put in X million and you're going to get back X thousand. Um, but there are areas where I believe that the expectations of the technology are currently outpacing the actual performance. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, and the one that I would point out in particular is in around deep learning. Anything with um, neural networks. It's it's a fantastic technology and it's showing a lot of promise. But at this point, I believe that the expectations are outpacing what the technology can actually do. So, for example, I see a lot of um, speculation around uh, using machine vision based on neural networks to automatically view and assess uh, claim damage, right? So, being able, and and to some degree, being able to use um, machine vision to assess that there is some damage there or that something happened is possible, but uh, I think at this point, some of the expectations are outpacing um, you know, what the technology can actually recognize and the levels um, of, I guess, detail that it can discern. Yeah. So and now when you say deep learning, are you using this synonymously with computer vision data, or do you mean deep learning in all of its iterations? 
No, I, I'm talking specifically about the application of neural networks and more specifically like convolutional neural networks. So um, it, it, it's a specific technology. Yep. Um, and that technology, although it has shown promise in a lot of different areas, um, again, I believe some of the expectations might be ahead of what it, it can accomplish. So, you know, when I'm saying deep learning, I'm talking about the application um, of neural networks. Got it. And and obviously, you know, arguably where neural networks popped off, where neural networks still have some of their most blazingly brilliant and interesting results is in the domain of vision, computer vision. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're highlighting that as one neural network use case where maybe we're a little bit more excited than, than we should be given the challenges that are ahead. Um, any quick final points on sort of, you know, why that is, what, why maybe people are overlooking or, or the, the noise is just a little bit greater than the opportunity for, for that. Um, if we just talk about, let's say, the claims assessing with images, I know what you're talking about and for the listeners here, I believe, Jerry, is where people can use an app to take photos of the damaged bumper, and then that photo will get pulled up into the cloud and we'll be able to potentially assess what it's going to cost to fix it. Is this what you were talking about? Yeah, those types of things. Okay. Or being able to send a drone into um, an area that's been hit by a, a tornado. Yes, and okay. have that drone, you know, automatically assess, you know, uh, claims and be able to automatically send checks to, to for relief. And, you know, there's a great use cases, but in a lot of cases, the um, expectations are a little bit ahead of the technology. Now, you asked why, which, oh, my gosh, I, I love that question, especially <laughs> at the end, because um, it allows me to, you know, to, to give some advice as well. I believe that the reason that the expectations are in front of the technology is because of the way the applications are described. We tend to anthropomorphize. And by that, I mean, when we're describing the applications of this technology, we talk about it in terms of human performance. The machine sees it, it makes an assessment, it decides, it thinks, you know, those types of things. But the machine isn't actually doing that. Yep. You're running calculations. No, not at all. You are taking, um, you know, uh, uh, an image and you're breaking it into a mathematical representation and then you're performing calculations based on that. And if you understand, you know, at a more engineering level what this is doing, then it, it's, it tends to automatically reset your expectations as to what can be accomplished, which gets me to my, um, my, my advice here is, you know, this, this might not be you know, the, the sexiest thing in the world to learn some of the um, nuts and bolts of how this technology works. And I'm certainly not saying that you have to be able to bring up like a, a Python um, yeah, yeah. Uh, IDE, be able to, to write up code. But I, I think that everyone interested in this technology needs to be data and technology literate. That is, you have to have more than uh, an anthropomorphic understanding of what this stuff is. And it's actually worth it to take um, a, a class or, you know, however you get the knowledge to have more of an engineering understanding of what a neural network is. Yeah, and I think maybe this is a good closing point to, to wrap on. I think we've certainly beat this drum many, many times, uh, ye poor listeners. But um, I think it's important to, to, to sort of harp on here is that it is impossible for executives, you know, the leaders of, of companies and departments to assess what can this tech do, where could this bring opportunity, unless you understand some conceptual level understanding of what the heck the tech is, and, and some conceptual understanding of what the precedence of use cases are. 
a ton of our our own work in the enterprise is essentially you know grilling and drilling those two points home because I think as you're pointing out if we're just reading about this stuff we're reading about it like it's magic or we're reading about it like it's just IT and none of those are accurate there's a unique under uh, a unique concepts to grasp and it sounds like you're advising leaders to to get get their hands around that that's right. Absolutely. Excellent. I dig it. Well, I, I like that as an ending point as well, Jerry. Thank you a ton for being able to be with us here on AI and Industry. All right. Thank you, Dan. So that's it for this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed this one. I want to make sure everybody knows, I'll say it again, the format for the show and the publishing date is going to be different. So if you listen to us on your commute, we're now going to be coming out every single Tuesday with a new episode here on AI and Industry. And I want to give you a preview of what is to come in the next episode. Um, Our next guest coming up on Tuesday in our new series on AI adoption, a four-part series for the whole month of August, is Vlad Sejnoa. Vlad was the Chief Technology Officer at Nuance Communications which is a multi-billion dollar company in the domain of natural language processing, probably the best known NLP company on the planet. Again, multi-billion dollar firm. Uh, Vlad was CTO there for many years and has recently pivoted to become a venture investor with Glasswing Ventures here in the Boston area. Uh, I caught up with Vlad in person to talk about his experience seeing AI get implemented in, get adopted in to financial services, healthcare, automotive. What are the best practices that apply across sectors? What do leaders need to know to pick a project that's actually going to deliver results, that's actually going to be able to bring itself into an enterprise and become part of a workflow. What are the critical processes to make that happen? Vlad unlocks some of his best practices, and he is, I think, the best person to kick off this new series on AI adoption. So be sure to tune in next Tuesday. Very excited about the format shift, and I will catch you in the coming week.